welcome to our study of 1 Timothy. We're in our last chapter today. It's chapter 6. And uh, let's open in prayer. Father, we just thank you for bringing us here today. We ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would um, empty of me, of me, and fill me with um, your power, Lord, that I may speak only the words you would have me to speak. And I ask that this would be done only for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Nice. All right. Um, the song that I had picked for our Bible study to sing is um, How Firm a Foundation, which is a fabulous song. And so I'm going to read something from it. Um, and this is a great book. I'm just going to give Robert Morgan a plug. Then Sings My Soul. He's got three versions of it. But he, he has the hymn on one side, and then they have something about the hymn on the other side. But the words are, How Firm a Foundation, Ye Saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. Fear not, I am with you, or be not dismayed. I am thy God, I will still give thee aid. I will strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee. I only design the dross be consumed and the gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That so, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. Of this, he writes, Isaiah forty one ten. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Talk about a long pastorate. John Rippon, pastor in Carter's Lane Baptist Church in London for 63 years, beginning in 1775. He had been born in 1751, so he was in his mid-20s when he mounted the Carter's Lane pulpit, following his education at the Baptist College in Bristol, England. During the years of Carter's Lane, John developed a vision for a church hymnal, which he edited, assisted by his minister of music, Robert King. The resulting volume, a selection of hymns from the best authors, intended to be an appendix to Dr. Watts's Psalms and Hymns, that was the title of it, it's a little lengthy, was published in 1787. It was a runaway hit, though, especially among the Baptists, going through 11 Bab British editions during Rippon's lifetime. An American edition appeared in 1820. How Firm a Foundation first appeared here. No one knows its author, for the line received by the author's name simply bore the letter K. Many scholars attribute the composition to King himself. The unique power of this hymn is due to the fact that each of the seven original stanzas was based on various biblical promises. This is why I'm always telling you guys, Know the promises of Scripture and pray them back and claim them. The first verse established the hymn's theme. God's word is sufficient foundation for our faith. It is sufficient foundation for our faith. The author then selected precious promises from the Bible and converted these into hymn standards. Among them was 41.10 of Isaiah, which we read. Isaiah 43.2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. 
2 Corinthians 12, 9 says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly I will boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest on me. And then Hebrews 1, 3-5, For he himself has said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. No wonder this hymn was first published under the title, Exceedingly Great and Gracious Gracious Promises of God. No wonder, indeed. Paul begins chapter 6 with the command that we are to show honor and respect to those who are under, that we are under so that God's name, his great reputation, and the Christian teaching may not be slandered. Everybody is under somebody. This motivation drove Paul's actions, and it drives all of Scripture as well. Every believer is to be Christ's reflection through his power for his glory. We are to leave the aroma of Christ to our every encounter. Paul's directives are not too dissimilar to his command to us in chapter 2, where he exhorts us to pray and intercede with thanksgiving for all of those in authority over us, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. Our actions are to point others to him. Always, not to ourselves, but to him. Remember, God desires for all men to be saved and come to a saving knowledge of the truth. It matters greatly how believers live their lives. Be very careful then, Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 15-17, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. <clears throat> Greg Laurie writes on this, and he's called, he calls it singing through the darkness, and he, he uses the term, uh, the verse in Acts 16, 26. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Paul and Silas had just been flogged probably near death, and they were singing in chains to the Lord. The world watches with great interest when a Christian faces adversity. Amen to that. Every one of us faces hardships. Every single one of us. Every one of us loses loved ones. Every one of us faces sickness. Every one of us encounters difficulties and hardships of life. But when it happens to Christians, non-believers watch to see if our faith is genuine. That is the time to show them what Christ can do, even in difficult times. Acts 16 tells the story of Paul and Silas, who were thrown into prison for preaching the gospel. Their backs had been ripped open with a whip, and at midnight, in the most unsanitary of conditions, in a filthy environment, with their legs stretched apart in shackles, causing excruciating pain, Paul and Silas held a worship service. The Bible tells us that at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Suddenly, an earthquake shook the prison. Their shackles fell off, the walls came down, and they were free to go. The Philippian jailer, assuming that they were free, knew he would be tortured and then put to death. He took out his own sword and was ready to kill himself. But Paul said, do yourself no harm. We're all here. Then later the jailer said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas made an impact on them. 
Regarding the resurrection in the end times, Daniel confirms the wisdom of our choice to be wise, which brings much consolation to the believer. He tells us in Daniel 12, 2-3, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. We hold to the truth. We who hold to the truth are responsible for both speaking it and fleshing it out. Head knowledge only puffs up, but it's love that acts and edifies. It's the head knowledge that pours to the heart, to the hands, and out of our bodies. We are to make known the truth of his word by our actions, wherever he chooses, and under whomever he chooses to place us. Do others see Jesus in you? Scripture states, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. Paul uses the word servant, translated from the Greek word doulos, meaning slave, bond slave, indentured servant, literally one owned as a property of another. We belong to Christ. We are not our own. We've been bought with a high price. We are to honor God with our bodies. Indeed, as believers, we are all bond slaves to Christ, who has redeemed us by his precious blood. We're not our own. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You have been bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Indeed, in the book of Romans, Philippians, Colossians, and Titus, Paul begins his letters by calling himself a servant of Christ Jesus, and in Philemon, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Philippians tells us that even our Lord Jesus made himself a servant for us. I think that places us in mighty fine company, do you not? He writes in Philippians 2, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being a very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we bend our knee, God lifts us up. The essence of Christianity is that our master has become our servant and so in turn we gladly become his slave. A small caveat here for you mothers with young children. Teach them to serve, and not merely for the accolades of man, but for the smile of God. We all live quorum Deo before the face of God, who shows no favoritism. This is a wonderful reminder for us as well. We are to live our lives for an audience of one. If we please him by walking in his ways, it is the richest and fullest life. It is the abundant life. It is what we were made for. It is our glorious freedom. Furthermore, it is the life we were created to possess. You can take that to the bank. Everything we do is to be a representation of our God. Therefore, we are to work hard 
and work well, even when it's not easy, and especially when it's not easy. Our actions are to reflect his glory. At the end of the day, the question is not whether we are slaves, because we all are slaves to something, but rather whose slaves we are. Either we will be, serve sin, self, or Satan, or the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Paul reminds us in Colossians, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eyes on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. It's working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrong, and there is no favoritism in God's eyes. Christianity is primarily aimed at personal redemption, so that as people are redeemed, societal structures begin to be transformed. The key is the heart of God's people. It always starts with the heart. As God changes us, he changes us, the world around us, through the Holy Spirit's power within us. God works from the inside out. Next, Paul revisits false teachers whom he had previously drawn our attention to in chapter 1. He says in 1 Timothy 1, 3-5, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay here in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. All of God's commands are out of love or motivated by love. He tells us in chapter 6, If any teaching does not agree with the sound teaching of Jesus, the teacher is conceited and knows nothing. We've talked about this before. Take whatever you hear from me, from anybody, back to the Word of God and see if it fits, if it's in there. If it is, then you, it should be made into your core values. He goes on to say these teachers are interested in controversies and quarrels. They just want their, their point being made regarding words resulting in envy and strife. They were men of corrupt minds that have been blinded by the truth. We must also beware of that part of our sinful nature which instinctively chooses to see what we want to see and to ignore what we want to ignore until it's too late and the damage is done. We must be alert and obedient to the Spirit's moving rather than indulging in the movement of our whims, our wishes, and our biases, which is so easy to fall into. As we have discussed before, God does not move forward with us, not at all, until we deal with whatever he is working on in our lives. And believe me, he is always working. I love Newton's quote on the will. This is John Newton. He says, it's natural for us to wish and to plan and to be merciful of the Lord. To, excuse me. It's natural for us to wish and to plan. And it is merciful of the Lord to disappoint our plans and to cross our wishes. For we cannot be safe or happy until we are weaned from our own wills and made simply desirous of being directed by his guidance. 
Although we understand this, we seldom learn to put it into practice without being trained for a while in the school of disappointment. The schemes we form look so plausible and convenient that when they are broken, we are ready to say, what a pity. We try again and with no better success. We are grieved and perhaps angry and plan another and so on. Eventually, in the course of time, experience and observation begin to convince us that we are no more able then we are worthy to choose correctly for ourselves. The Lord's invitation to cast our cares upon him and his promise to take care of us appear valuable. And when we have done the planning, his plan in our favor gradually opens, and he does more and better for us than we could either ask or think. I can hardly recollect a single plan of mine, which if it had been taken place in the time and the way I wanted it would, would humanly speaking have proved my ruin, or at least would have been deprived me of the greater good the Lord had designed for me. We don't want to miss his best for our lives. We judge things by their present appearance, but the Lord sees them in their consequences. If we could do the same, we would be perfectly out of his mind. But since we can't, it is an unspeakable mercy that he will manage for us whether we are pleased with his management or not. And it is regarded as one of the heaviest judgments when he gives any person up to the way of their own hearts and to walk according to their own wisdom. In Paul's day, as in ours, materialism seemed to have gotten hold of the hearts of these false teachers, blinding them from the things God would have them to see. Sadly, in our times, this section of scripture shines a bright light as well on the glaring sin of materialism of many Christians and churches in America today, which taints and permeates their views of scripture. Like the false teachers Paul speaks of, many modern-day pulpits have been robbed of the truth and consider godliness a means to financial gain as well. The prosperity gospel is still alive and going strong, to be sure. When you see no present advantage, walk by faith and not by sight. Do God the honor to trust him when it comes to matters of loss for the sake of principle. See whether he will be your debtor. See if he doesn't even in this life prove his word that godliness with contentment is great, great gain and that they who seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given them as well. To wear a guileless spirit, to have a heart void of offense, to have the favor and smile of God is greater riches than the minds of Ophir could yield. Charles Spurgeon writes, Let's take a moment and examine this precious jewel of contentment. Paul tells us in Philippians that it is a learned secret. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. You will see it once, Spurgeon writes, from reading the text this, that I just read to you, upon the very surface that contentment in all states is not a natural propensity of man. 
ill weeds grow apace. Covetedness, discontent, and murmuring are as natural to man as thorns are to the soil. Amen? We don't need to plant them, nurture them, or water them. You have no need to sow thistles and brambles. They come up naturally enough because they are indigenous to the earth upon which rests the curse. So you have no need to teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without any education. But the precious things of the earth must be cultivated. They must be cultivated. If we would have wheat, we must plow and sow. If we want flowers, there must be the garden and all the gardener's care. Now contentment is one of the flowers of heaven. And if we would have it, it must be cultivated. Indeed, Christ is more than sufficient in all our circumstances for believers. The apostle tells us godliness literally means God-likeness. That is true piety, devoutness, holiness is great gain. Godliness does not necessarily give financial gain. It itself is great gain when accompanied with contentment. We have all received blessings, both temporal and spiritual, from God, and our hearts should be going out to him in continual gratitude and praise. We should not be characterized by a spirit of restlessness and discontent, whining and murmuring, which dominates the men and women of this world. That is exactly what got many of the Jews into trouble in their wanderings in the desert. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They missed the leeks and the onions in Egypt. And they whined and complained until Moses was about fit to be tied. Let's do ourselves a favor and learn from their experience. Everything in Scripture is written to teach us, to keep us um, from learning on a field trip rather than in a classroom. The Jewish Talmud says that man is born with his hands clenched, but he dies with his hands wide open. Coming into the world, he is trying to grasp everything, but going out, he has to give up everything. We can take nothing worldly with us, only what has been sent ahead of us. In fact, the only two things on this earth that are eternal are the word of God and the souls of men. Jesus rightly warns us, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew six nineteen through 21 We are to be continually watching and guarding our hearts with an eye for destructive cravings, excessiveness, or anything that can replace God's rightful place on the throne of our lives. Solomon tells us, um, the man who fears God will avoid all extremes in Ecclesiastes. Jeremiah also tells us the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, according to what his deeds deserve. And it's not only the deeds that God looks at, it's the MO, it's the motivation behind the deed that he's even more concerned about. We are to be constantly placing our confidence and our contentment in him who is our sufficiency and our strength, who is always faithful and who loves us with an everlasting love. When we are filled with him to overflowing, we are content and no longer needy and we have something to share with others. 
We have an abundance, if you will, of him that flows to all around us. We will bring forth perpetual fruit. Jeremiah also tells us, but blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. He will be like a tree. This is from Psalm 1, planted by the water that sends its roots out by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought, and it never fails to bear fruit. You have enough, Ann Voskamp says of him, and he is enough. You are enough because the great I am is in you, with you, and for you. He is enough, and that is enough. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. What of all states God ever sees man in gives him most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. That's by J. Packer. J.I. Packer. Robert Morgan writes, Our satisfaction and contentment in life does not come from riches, but from righteousness. And lastly, contentment is a learned secret that sadly many fail in their endeavors to obtain. It is never found in more, better, bigger, new marriages, new marriages, children, or whatever that whatever may be. Oh, it may appear briefly with these faux gods we seek to enthrone that vanishes quickly after obtaining. A contentment and peace which prevails is found only in Christ. He wants to fill our wants. Just ask him. He wants to be the desire of our hearts. Seek him. Because he knows it will make us whole so that we are no longer needy or just plain annoying to be around. God fills completely when we allow him. He wants to fill us in order to spill us, which, by the way, brings much joy to the soul and to others, so that we leave the aroma of Christ in our spheres rather than the stench of death. This is the abundance he came to give us, life to the fullest measure. This is contentment. Paul tells us godliness with contentment is great gain. Remember, we bring nothing in and we take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, we are to be content with that. We are not to be a people who insatiably crave material possessions, which lead us to, to fall into temptation and a trap, as Scripture tells us, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge us into ruin and destruction. Lusting after money and loving it is the root of all kinds of evil. Things or possessions are not inherently bad. Nor is money inherently evil itself. Rather, it is the love of it. It is our attitude towards it. It is when it's upon the throne of our lives. It's our great desire for it. As believers, we are to be on guard against the cravings of both possessions and money. Our attitude towards money is an indicator of our hearts. And our checkbooks, as well as your daytimers, will reflect your true priorities. Materialism can be destructive. Money and possessions may look appealing, but can be a trap that can lead us to indulge in unhealthy ways that can kill our souls. 
to be sure we don't want to be pierced with many griefs. We usually believe that greed, worry, and generosity primarily deal with how we manage our money, but all three conditions are actually heart issues. They're just plain heart issues. Even the poorest people can be greedy. Wealth is never evil in itself. It is amoral, not good or bad. But the question we must ask ourselves is always, do I have wealth or does it have me? It's never about the money. It's never about the thing or the person. It's always about the heart. Jesus reminds us of this truth with his words. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In Luke 12, 34. It's from Dinah Evans. Lastly, contentment breeds an abundant peace. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word translated for peace is shalom, meaning to be safe, complete, health, security, tranquility. It can mean the absence of strife, yet signifies much more. It essentially denotes a satisfied condition, a state of peacefulness, a sense of well-being, both externally and internally. This word is used in Isaiah to refer to Jesus, the coming Messiah, calling him the Prince of Peace. For us, to us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over the kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah 9, 6-7 tells us. The Greek word translated peace in the New Testament is Irene, meaning peace, tranquility, repose, calm, harmony, accord, well-being, prosperity. It denotes a state of untroubled, undisturbed well-being. Doesn't that just sound delicious? A state of untroubled, undisturbed well-being. This word is used to describe Jesus as well in Ephesians when Paul tells us, for he himself is our peace. He himself is our undisturbed, untroubled well-being. Peaceful contentment is found in Christ alone. It is never found in anything but Christ alone. Let him daily fill you with the rest you receive, is, and the rest you receive is superfluous. You do not, it's merely a cherry on top. Once you're filled with him, everything else is just a cherry. Because rich or poor, or somewhere in between, everything minus Jesus equals nothing. And Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's by Scott Siles. I'll never forget, this is also by Scott Siles, being prayed for by Ray, a friend whose world is one filled with material poverty, homelessness, setbacks, and empty hands. Ray prayed strong and spontaneous that I, the pastor of the big church from Nashville, Tennessee, who writes books and has a blog and lives in a comfortable house and has never been concerned about missing a meal and has always been able to pay his bills, would know the security of the Father's care. The smile of the Father's love, the freedom of the Father's grace, the intimacy of the Father's arms, the friendship of the Father's family, and the abundance of the Father's provision. 
Ray prayed as a man who, possessing close to nothing, possessed all things. He prayed as a man with empty hands, but a full heart. He prayed as a man with abundant gratitude, as if he had a secret treasure stored up in a world that I had only heard and talked about, but perhaps had not yet seen. In that moment, I began to wonder which one of us was really living large and which one was living in scarcity. I began to wonder which of us was running with two legs and which of us was running with one. I began to wonder which of us was carrying the aces and which of us was carrying an empty hand. As Luther aptly said, we are all beggars. This is true. The Hebrew word shalom, Michael Yusuf writes, is often translated peace, but its full meaning has a deeper richness to it. Shalom is a sense of completeness and soundness and living well. It implies safety, good health, prosperity, tranquility, and contentment. Shalom means favor, fulfillment, restoration, harmony, and reconciliation. God is Jehovah Shalom, the God of all peace. Shalom meets the human heart's deepest longings and is the greatest measure of contentment. True shalom cannot exist in a heart that is void of Jesus Christ. Shalom cannot exist in a heart that is divided between a love for God and a love of the world. It can't walk that tightrope. There is no room for peace in a heart that is harboring anxiety, distrust, greed, anger, or bitterness. The Messiah is referred to as the Prince of Peace in Isaiah 9-6, which we read. Although the text translates to Prince, the original meaning of the word embodies the power of the King. The Prince here has the full authority, delegation, and dignity of the King. Only when the Prince of Peace rules in our hearts and minds can we have peace. And as we're told in Colossians, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you are called to peace and be thankful. Until we submit to his authority and power, our peace will be incomplete. Paul now turns his attention directly to Timothy in his concluding section, beginning in verse 11, using the word you. Indeed, he states, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, pursue it. Holiness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul not only tells his beloved Timothy to flee from evil, a false teaching, materialism, covetousness, quarreling, controversies, discontent, and the like, he tells him, and us as well, what to pursue. Righteousness, which is just, upright, conforming to the claims of a higher authority, which we all have. Godliness, which is a devotion of piety toward God. Faith is to win over trust, belief, and obedience consisting of our of, of or identified as faith. And love, cherish, favor, honor, respect, except rooted in the mind and the will of the subject, meaning to value, esteem, prize, treat as precious, and be devoted to. Endurance, to persevere, bear up under, patience or constancy under suffering and duty and faith and gentleness. The list 
is not too dissimilar to the fruit of the Spirit, which we find in Galatians, the possession of which every Christian is to be fanning into flames, and every Christian has. But the fruit of the Spirit, Paul writes in Galatians, is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and its desires. We are to crucify, die to that, our sinful nature. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. The Christian is to be characterized by righteousness in all of his dealings. God desires for his children to be conformed to the image of his Son, which we said before. Holiness is a pursuit. We easily fall into sin, but we must pursue holiness. There's a battle that's raging, and we, like Timothy, are called to fight the good fight of the faith in every generation. This is the second time Paul alludes to this in his letter. We see in chapter 1, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, holding on to the faith and good conscience. Some have rejected these, and if so, shipwrecked their faith. 1 Timothy 1, 18-19. This is a good fight, and the fight is for eternal life. It's a fight for peace, confidence, and hope. Not just for us, but for so that others, too, may escape everlasting torment and receive eternal life. This is a good fight, but that does not mean it's an easy fight. There's a God over this world who wants all people to be saved. And there's a God, little g, in this world who wants all people to burn in hell. There's a battle raging for your family. There's a battle raging for your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, and for all the peoples of the world. How we fight this battle has eternal implications. We are to be good soldiers, and we are to persevere in this endeavor. Peacetime is coming, be assured of that, but it is not here now. Satan does not want us to believe, live out, or spread this gospel. Yet God wants us to fight this good fight with his power, in his armor, for his glory. We are to be good and faithful soldiers in the Lord's army. Also, we do not fight this war for victory. Rather, we fight from victory. The battle has been won. It is finished with Jesus' last words. Paul tells us in Ephesians, the attire that we are to put on. Finally, he says, all believers be strong in the Lord. And in his mighty power, not in your mighty power, in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. And against the armor, excuse me, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when... Not if, but when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. 
and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the saints. That's Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. There is no discharge from this war. We are enlisted for life or until we meet our Lord when he returns in power and glory. We are to keep this command, Paul states, without spot or blame until his appearing, which God will bring about in his own time. Then each one will be rewarded according to the measure of his devotedness to Christ and subjection to his word. Solomon tells us no man has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the day of his death. As no one is discharged in time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it. Ecclesiastes 8.8 Lastly, Paul addresses those to whom God has entrusted wealth. We have nothing we have not received. Those with wealth are not superior people because they have more dollars than others or because they are able to buy more material goods than others. Everything we have is by the mercy of God. Therefore, those so entrusted are to be open-handed. They are to do good, ready to distribute willing to share their bounty with those in need so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. God, who richly gives everything for our enjoyment, desires for us to be a giving and generous people. If we want to enjoy life at its very best, then we are to use what God has committed to our trust, not only for our enjoyment, but also for the blessing of others. Remember, it's a terrible thing to be in the grip of greed and covetousness. I'm reminded of the parable our Lord spoke in Luke. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. He didn't think about giving them away. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat and drink and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. In Luke 12, 16-22. We are to guard what God has entrusted to our care as we are held accountable for the gifts we have been given. Always our example is sweet Jesus. And I'm going to close a reading a portion of um, Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. And he writes, and this is from 1 Timothy 6.17, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Our Lord Jesus is always giving, and not for a single instant does he withdraw his hand. As long as there is a vessel of grace not yet full to the brim, the oil shall not be stayed. He is a sun ever shining. He is manna always falling around the camp. He is a rock in the desert ever sending out streams of life from his smitten side. The rain of his grace is always dropping, the river of his bounty is ever flowing, and the wellspring of his love is constantly overflowing. 
As a king can never die, so his grace can never fail. Daily we pluck his fruit and daily his branches bend down to our hand with a fresh store of mercy. There are seven feast days in his weeks, and as many as are the days, so many are the banquets in his years. Who has ever returned from his door unblessed? Who has ever risen from his table unsatisfied, or from his bosom unparadised? His mercies are new every morning and fresh every evening. Who can know the number of his benefits or recount the list of his bounties? Let's close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your overabundance to us in all things. Lord, help us live life with open hands and be conduits of your mercy and grace to others that are around us. And we ask that you would be glorified through our lives, all for your good and for our glory. And for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.